So much to talk about on the OHL podcast this week, including how the Butler did it and what I personally believe might be the model Ontario Hockey League franchise. But we'll get to all of that as we move into another week here on the show. Dan Mahar over there. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. And hey, don't be shy. Use the email address anytime OHL podcast at rogers.com to get in touch with us. Let us know something you'd like us to cover, something that we're missing. Tell us we're morons. We're not really morons. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. Anyway, use the email address OHL podcast at rogers.com anytime. And Dan, as we dive into the league this week, I don't think we can begin anywhere other than with the remarkable Zane Perek in Saginaw. What a phenom, really, this kid has turned into. Yeah, you know, I, I went out of the box earlier on in this season to kind of reference him, even though he's only a 16-year-old, not an NHL prospect this year. But he was doing some pretty remarkable things on the stat sheet and tried to get a good look at him. And and what a story that kid is becoming. Just, I believe, no goals in the first 10 games. So running about 20 goals in his next 30. It's crazy for a 16-year-old defenseman in, in this league. And just for those who haven't watched him, I just I just love his approach to offense and the way he gets the wide stance, opens his body to the net, which gives you a better vision for the shooting lanes and B better technique for fooling the goal. You can shoot, you can twist your wrists and shoot blocker side, glove side, almost always a wrist shot with that kid. Just uh deadly accuracy. What a story he's becoming. So obviously the big part of that story is he scored his 20th goal of the season as a 16 year old rookie defenseman in this Ontario hockey league. And that breaks a 35-plus-year-old mark established by Rick Corovo, the former London Knight back in 86-87, where he scored 19 as a rookie defenseman in this league. To make it even sweeter for Zane Perek of the Saginaw Spirit, he scores his record-breaking goals on his 17th birthday in a game against the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. But he's now at 20 on the season, and that's the other thing to think about here. He's at 20 already. He's already broken the record. So if the record of 19 stood for 35 years, and I know the game is different and there's a much higher emphasis on the skill now. So I don't know. Do you argue it it might fall the record sooner? But he's still got, Perek does, time this season to continue adding to that record for goals by a rookie defenseman in the Ontario Hockey League. It's impressive as heck across the board. Yeah, Mike, that's the crazy thing about this is you look at a record that stood for 35 years, breaking that in its own right would be impressive. There's a month left. And so this this couldn't this could be smashed by then. And and when you put it in context, the reason we're probably raving so much is it's impressive enough for a 16-year-old defenseman in this league to get enough ice time to produce at all. Just often they're along for the ride, they're learning the ropes, they're sitting back and seeing how the veterans do. This is a 16-year-old who's earned his ice time, getting his ice time, continuing to produce with that ice time, playing on a team that was actually running up a decent record, a really good record in the first half of the season, and a coach that had enough faith in him to keep running him out there so that he could do this. Uh, So it's on pretty much every level you look at this thing, Mike, this is a really impressive season for Perek. I had the pleasure of watching Perek play in games while Pavel Minchikov was still a member of the Saginaw Spirit. So just let that sink in for a moment. Those two guys as defensemen 
running the way they can offensively, it was it was a real treat to watch. And I think it explains in large part how or why Saginaw was as successful as they were in the early part of the season. Obviously, things tailed off and tailed off rather dramatically after the trade of Pavel Minchikov. But the Spirit have now won three in a row. And just to, again, focus on Perek and what he means to the team. Up to now, that 20 goals on the season. But I've heard comparisons, and take them for what they are, but of Zane Perek to Brant Clark. If you want to project the way this guy is looking in the league at his age, think of Brant Clark today, and is Zane Perek that kind of player? Look, each player is their own individual, but the bottom line is this has been really impressive. And an interesting little tidbit on Zane Perek. Did you know he wasn't originally drafted by the Saginaw Spirit? The Owen Sound attack picked Zane Perek the year prior, but there was a little mix-up because Perek's birthday, February the 15th, so he wasn't actually eligible for the 2021 draft when Owen Sound picked him. He was on the board, and he was listed as being eligible, but they caught it. They flagged it. Owen Sound had to do the pick over. They took Leland Gill instead, uh, a young goaltender out of Oakville. Now, Gill is having himself a decent season with the Hamilton Kilty Bees in the Greater Ontario Junior Hockey League loop, the Junior B loop. He's sitting 18-4 and four with a 230 goals against and a 910 save percentage. Not bad, but that was a 13th rounder in 2021. Obviously, Perek's a year younger, and it turns out he wasn't draft eligible anyway, but there's a nice little uh, piece of trivia for you. Dale DeGray, he's got a, no- he's got a nose <laughs> for talent there in Owen Sound. He actually had Perek on his board and took him in the 13th round in 2021. Turns out Perek wasn't even really eligible then. And of course, the Saginaw Spirit get him in the first round where you would have expected a talent like this to go in 2022. So there you go. Yeah, and, and probably from Dale DeGray's standpoint, you're looking at a kid saying he's got to be draft eligible. Look at him out there. So, um, But... If we're giving anyone listening to this pod today some homework to go watch Zane Perek play, I, I want you to look for a couple things the way this kid plays the game. And I can't emphasize this enough to young players looking for an offensive game. Quickness is the number one thing. You'll talk a lot about power, power on your shot. You'll talk a lot about various things that wow people. Quickness on the pucks, on the loose pucks. Perek has that brilliant read of the ice where he scans it, and his feet are moving before anyone else on the ice to loose pucks. That's that's critical to getting him to the spot quickly, buys him that extra couple feet he needs to get a lane to get the right shot. And then the shot release itself. Not often a huge flowery windup that lets the defense and the goaltender adjust. It's quick. It's off his stick in a heartbeat, and he's worried about the accuracy more than anything. So Overall quickness is the key ingredient for him. And boy, if you're if you're a young player watching, try to pick up some of those habits because if you can be quick on pucks and quick on release, you don't need the power and strength that you think you might need. Offense is born from quickness and Perek has it in spades. It's worth on that note too, just watching this kid play. So if the Saginaw Spirit are coming into your city to play your OHL team, Buy a ticket. I'm not going to try to make the Connor Bedard comparisons at all because he's selling out Barnes except his own in the dub right now. But Zane Perek is honestly one of those players that's worth the price of admission. And it makes me think to a question we got 
was it email OHL podcast at rogers.com or no, I think it was a comment on one of our YouTube videos on the OHL podcast YouTube channel, but asking about who we think is going to get the Memorial cup next year. Again, I'm going to say, and the announcements about a month away now, uh, on roster alone. And then there are other things going obviously for the Saginaw spirit franchise, but you look at the Saginaw team this year, you look at the moves that the team has made to position itself for next year and whether they're hosting or not. I think the Saginaw spirit are already, I know it's a long way away, but they're in the conversation as having a championship type roster on paper coming into next season. And you look at what they've been able to do this year. Uh, Perec is a guy worth the price of admission. And let's just stay on that for a moment because we wanted to make note of a couple of key injuries that have happened in the league. You never like to see it. One of them being to Michael Misa, the other being to Shane Wright. So let's start on the Misa point, another guy that's always worth the price of admission, but has not been in the lineup for the Saginaw Spirit since February the 3rd. He was injured in a game against the London Knights. There was a lot of talk after that one. It was a knee-on-knee collision with Max McHugh of the London Knights. A lot of people calling for supplemental discipline on McHugh. The interesting thing about the hit, it was originally assessed a five-minute major to McHugh. They reviewed it, and they actually reduced it to just two minutes. And if you listen to anybody who was talking about it, from the game itself when it happened, they said, you know what? Mises, this kind of player that is pretty shifty, and he shifted as McHugh was coming in to lay a body check, and it's hard to change trajectory at that point. So no intent was assumed on the part of Max McHugh, and you never really can determine what's going on in a player's mind. But I would say once they took time to review it and came back with the minor penalty instead of even the major, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Max McHugh the benefit of the doubt, say the officials did the right thing here after taking the time to review that and determining it wasn't something with ill intent. The unfortunate outcome of this is now we're at eight games and counting without Michael Misa, not just for the Saginaw spirit, but for this league, which is never really a, a good thing. We just wish him the best. And I, I checked in just before we started this recording today, and Misa's still listed as week to week with that lower body injury. So that doesn't sound like an imminent return at any stretch. No, it certainly sounds like we're looking at something a little longer term here. And obviously, all hopes are with Michael Mies and his recovery. First of all, for full recovery, you want him at full strength next year if we get Saginaw hosting that Memorial Cup for sure. Um, but certainly in the short term, you want you want to have the opportunity to watch him play in this dynamic 15-year-old season he's having. And yeah, on the on the hit, all I would say is very similar is, is I'm a big believer in punishing the intent and the act, not the result. And I know there was a bad result here. Uh, probably the most telling sign was that the folks on the Saginaw side were even saying it wasn't a dirty hit. It was just a bad result. So usually when the opponent is is saying that, it, it's telltale. It was just a bad result. Like you said, Mises a shifty player, but for everyone involved, mostly him, but for the fans hoping to see that kid before the end of the year, hoping the recovery is, is a couple weeks, more than a lot of weeks. Yeah, and just as a fan of the game, Dan, one of the things that, jumps out to me on this is just that Michael Misa and the numbers he was putting up, we've talked about this on previous episodes of this podcast. He was on John Tavares like pace here, right? Which is among the very best we've ever seen with exceptional players in this league. He was even 
trending along Connor McDavid's rookie season exceptional player pace. And and now you just don't get to realize what the full potential might have been. It's going to be that slightly shorter window because he's obviously not playing the entire 68. So thoughts, obviously, with the young man. Hope he's back sooner rather than later. Would absolutely love to see him back before the end of this season. I suspect we will. But anyway, that's just just as a fan of the game, you'd like to be able to compare apples to apples when we're looking back on these seasons someday. And unfortunately, this injury that has sidelined Misa will prevent us from doing that. The other one injury, that is, and it's it's equally impactful on the other end of the spectrum because you're the Windsor Spitfires. And you go out and you kind of shock the O, really, with all of the rumors where Shane Wright was going to end up. London seemed to be the hottest contender coming into trade deadline time. There were all kinds of rumors of Peterborough as well, maybe even a little bit of Barry. And all of a sudden, in swoops uh, uh, Bill Bowler and the Windsor Spitfires, and they grab Shane Wright. And all of a sudden, you've got this super line of Wright, Harrison, and Maggio in Windsor. But Wright now has also missed the past eight games, not playing since February the 2nd, also out with a lower body injury. Hasn't really slowed down that Windsor Express, if you will. Matt Maggio's continuing to score on a torrid pace, but just for the Spitfires organization and for the league, when you go out and make a, a move that is meant to really keep you at the top of the Western Conference standings and send you onto a deep playoff run, again, I have no doubt that Shane Wright will be back at some point before the end of this season, but it's unfortunate to be missing a player of his caliber in the league. Well, yeah, especially when you make that move and you sell a lot of tickets, as Windsor's been doing, and fans are hoping to see him. Now, fortunately, they have a great team there, so it's not going to hinge. Uh, the entertainment value isn't going to hinge on one or two players, but you don't want to see anyone miss a lot of time. You want to see him ramp up with his new team, get accustomed there, and and hit the playoffs running. So we're hoping to see Shane Wright back soon. And and you know, between the two situations with, with Wright and Misa, the one thing I will point out that's slightly different is I'm suggesting maybe Windsor isn't quite as panicked knowing in, they're in great shape. They've got a great well-rounded roster. They're, they're sitting atop the conference. They can probably afford to let Shane Wright take his time to get back to health. When we look at Saginaw, that's a team that had a great spot in the standings, uh, made the decision to trade Pavel Minchikov, knew that was going to hurt. But you forget that Michael Meese, like you said, was running at really high point rate and was a key part of that team. So you take both those components out and suddenly they're – kind of fighting for their playoff lives a bit now and sinking in the standings. So on the standings, probably Saginaw is probably most hit now by these by these injuries. It's most important to them. But for the sake of both players, you, you certainly hope to have a Shane Wright back at full speed soon. Yeah, and on the Saginaw side, after a, a really dreadful stretch after Minchikov was traded, they've kind of got things sorted out again, having won three in a row. And I think they're four of their past seven. Uh, but looking at it from the... Shane Wright, Windsor Spitfires perspective. Again, just looking at the player, I, I would rather, like I said, with Michael Misa, be able to compare apples to apples someday down the road. Now we don't necessarily get that opportunity. Shane Wright was a, a two point a game guy. He's played seven games for the Spits. He's got 14 points, but just when you consider the season that Shane Wright has had started in the national hockey league, sort of could we say he was a guy that was an exceptional player in the Ontario Hockey League did not go first overall into the NHL there was a lot of talk about that the crack and grab him fourth but he's in and out of the NHL lineup then he plays some games in the AHL then he's gone to the world juniors and now he's in the O. and just from the player 
I would have loved to have seen him get full games, full potential to kind of get his own mojo back before he moves on to what we know will be a really nice pro career in the National Hockey League. But now he's sidelined and he's waiting to get the chance. Hopefully, again, as you mentioned, the Spits maybe have a little bit of the luxury of time here, but I would love to see Shane Wright back sooner rather than later and really feeling good and playing well heading into the playoffs to see what he can help this Windsor team do just from the own the player's development point of view here. Yeah, it's a really valid point when you look at the season he's had, you know, being at training camp with Seattle, staying up there for a while, Team Canada, obviously starting in Kingston on to Windsor. So he's played for a lot of different teams this year, and that really messes with your with everything, not just the chemistry of the team you're on and finding your role on that team, but just your living arrangements, your surroundings, your teammate, all this, the social end of things. So a lot has gone on for Shane Wright this year and, and just doesn't really need any setbacks like this to extend any amount of time. So so with any luck, Windsor will have him back well ahead of the playoffs. All right. We would be remiss if we didn't at least make note of James Hardy. You brought this forward and good on you for doing so. Uh, as we speak today, one point away, just one from the all-time Mississauga franchise record for Mr. James Hardy. Yeah, and I think uh, it's nice to to recognize players like this whose dedication and commitment in this league has paid off. And anytime you're going to hold a franchise record for all-time scoring, that's something to write home about. And it's something that James Hardy, much like Zane Parekh's record, has plenty of time to not just beat it but smash it with uh, about a month left to go in the season here. So he could put a pretty lofty total there at the top of the Mississauga Steelheads franchise record dating back to the late 90s, I believe, when St. Mike's was the franchise. So... Um, some good players have come through there, uh, obviously passing uh, Riley Brace and Daryl Bootland, who have held it after five seasons in the O. So uh, James Hardy, I think everyone uh, who speaks of him will talk about what a solid citizen he is there and showing up every game. And there's a reason Mississauga decided not to trade him at this deadline, even though I'm sure they could have recouped a number of assets for him. So so kudos to James Hardy, tip of the cap on the eve of you setting that franchise record. Yeah, good point on tracing it back for the franchise record. That's why I said Mississauga, not necessarily the Steelheads, because this goes back to Toronto St. Mike's and a whole bunch of other things. However, uh, Daryl Bootland, Riley Brace, each with 234 points currently. The number Hardy, as mentioned at the time of this recording, at 233. So not any doubt that he will set a new mark. A couple of interesting points on the current co-franchise point leaders in Riley Brace and Daryl Bootland. Brace will, I don't believe, have maybe ever his mark for games played with the franchise broken. Uh, 304 in the regular season, a total of 352 games played with that Mississauga franchise. And I don't think that's going to be touched. He retired just a few years ago after a, a career in Europe. And Bootland is an interesting story as well. His 234 points for that Mississauga franchise uh, led him ultimately to a Kelly Cup victory with the Colorado Eagles, the East Coast Championship in 2017. So Bootland and Brace and their 234 will be surpassed by James Hardy's, whatever he ends up with, because he's sitting on 233 as we talk today. Uh, one other note I think is worth passing along. And I just, I have to chuckle a little bit at this one, Dan, because over the years, and, and I know, I, I wouldn't describe him in any way as a polarizing figure, but 
Stan Butler, who we talked about, I think it was just last week on the podcast, having been maybe two weeks ago, but having been rehired into this league by the Erie Otters. And some would say, you know, they roll their eyes. Oh my gosh, Stan Butler again, he's been around for so long. You know, he kind of, nobody really misses his defensive mindset, et cetera, whatever. I really came to, to enjoy my conversations with Stan Butler, certainly towards the end of his time up in North Bay. Once you get to know him, you find a pretty uh, amicable guy and, and really with a great sense of humor anyway, back in the league, but worth noting that he gets his first win as head coach of the Erie Otters when the Otters beat the battalion in North Bay. And let's not forget this North Bay team right now. That was just their fifth home ice loss this regular season. And lo and behold, the Otters build up a lead big enough because the battalion made a late push to come back in that one. But Erie wins it to start a road trip. And how poetic is that? The hockey gods were smiling on Stan Butler as he picks up that victory, his first as an Otters coach against his former team in North Bay. You just can't script this stuff. <laughs> and I, I'm willing to bet the kids on the bus on the ride home did not get McDonald's. They got something a little uh, <laughs> a little higher end after that one, courtesy of Stan. Yeah, it, it is poetic. You're right. And and full credit, as you mentioned, the end of a long road trip there for the, uh, the Erie Otters. And it was a game that they had every right to lose. <laughs> every excuse to lose every probability to lose. And somehow they found a way to, to dig deep and pull it out. And that, that speaks highly of Stan Butler and his ability to get, get what he could out of those kids and the, and the team themselves. There's a, there's a lot of pride in the dressing room when you're sitting 10th in the conference and can roll into a building like North Bay with a stacked team and, and pull that off. So, so another uh, kudos all around to the, to the Erie Otters and Stan Butler. Yeah, so that one actually came at the beginning of their road trip. They went North Bay, Sudbury, Sault Ste. Marie. So they start off with that big win. And then, but this is notable too. They get drummed the next night in Sudbury. And then on the tail end of their three and three through the north, the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds jump out to a three nothing lead on the Erie Otters. And so many interesting connections to that. The Greyhounds were coming off a horrible loss to the Kitchener Rangers 24 hours earlier. So they get the jump that you would have expected from a proud team in the Sioux getting up on the Erie Otters, but those Otters didn't quit and end up coming back and winning it in, I believe it finished in a shootout overtime or shootout, but either way. So they pick up two wins out of three games in three days on the road after starting with that win in North Bay. I just think that's impressive determination again from a 10th place team in the West. I, I'm not going to lay all of the credit at the feet of Stan Butler, but interesting that he gets that first win against the former team. And then his Otters team has the jam to come back from three, nothing down in their third in three, 10 hours from home. That's how far they had to travel back after that game in Sault Ste. Marie. And you know what? We saw another team erase a 3 nothing deficit. The London Knights on the brink of losing back-to-back -back games to the Sarnia Sting this past weekend. They're down 3 nothing in the second of those games, and they come roaring back in the third period to force overtime where the Knights win it. So, junior hockey, baby. No lead is ever safe. You know, and I think the, the learning point from this, Mike, we talked about a little earlier was... Uh, these kids are all being scouted. They know it. We have scouts in the building watching these games and we've seen quite a few big scores in the league this year. There's been some 12 ones, some 10 twos, some eight ones, some, some games where teams just got pounded and that happens over the course of the year, especially with three and threes and fatigue and, and whatnot. 
But the learning lesson is when these scouts are in the building, oftentimes those are the games they're watching most closely because they're looking for something from someone. And you hear it all the time from the scouting community. You're down four, five, nothing, six, one in the third period. You're ready to hit the showers, head home on the bus. They're looking for the guy that's going to say, no, I'm not okay with this. I'm going to go out there and try and spark something, do something, show I care, try and salvage something out of this game. So the learning lesson is uh, when you see those games that uh, that are occurring, and we saw it with both uh, Erie and London this this weekend, down three nothing in the comeback. Now three nothing is obviously a little more doable than than six or seven nothing. But the point being, don't give up. Show something. It's never too late in any given game to actually do that and catch someone's eye. If no, if no one else, your own teammates. So there's a lesson to be learned here. It's uh, one of the things that makes this game at this level great. No lead is ever safe. And oftentimes you'll find yourself shaking your head and saying, oh man, the Ontario Hockey League, it just never disappoints, does it? Okay, still to come on this episode of the OHL podcast, we of course have our prospects of the week. And I think I have an argument, even as a Kitchener guy, as to where the model franchise is in this Ontario Hockey League. So those stories still to come this week on the show. St. Marie, our second trip up there this season. And this kind of clicked in to me earlier in the season when we were there. And I, I wanted to get the chance to, to bring it up because, you know, as a kid that grew up in Southern Ontario, I used to think that Sudbury was North, like that's as far North as you can get, or that just felt like Northern Ontario. And then of course I spent some time in my professional career working in Thunder Bay and I realized what North really is and how big the province of Ontario really is. But Sault Ste. Marie is only about halfway from Southern Ontario up to Thunder Bay, but Sault Ste. Marie represents the northernmost outpost in the Ontario Hockey League. And I will bitch and I will moan because I'm a Southern Ontario softie all the time about making that long trip up to the Sioux. Eight hours, one way, but you only have to do it twice. And the more, the longer I've been in this league, the more I think about what it must be like for players in the Sioux, where their shortest trip is about three and a half hours down to Sudbury. They, of course, cross conferences to get more games against those northern teams because otherwise they're traveling goodness knows how many hours. Well, I guess it would be about three and a half to four over to Saginaw, Flint, et cetera, to stay in the Western Conference. Bottom line is the travel is far more arduous for Sault Ste. Marie. But you never hear a peep. And I don't know, we've had so many guests on the feature interview side of this podcast who played in the Sioux and just raved about the fans the way the organization treated them. And I've been getting a real sense of that when I go up there now. And I just, I pay attention to the way the organization operates from the longstanding employees that they have working for the Greyhounds. I mean, we've got people on the operations side, including my 
buddy, Jerry Liscom Jr., who does communications and play-by-play for the team. He's coming up on 20 years with the team. He's a Suite hired by the Greyhounds. He's been with the organization for all that time. But the bottom line, without getting too deep into it, is they do the little things right. From, from the reception in the rink on the scouts and media side to the way that players are treated. Just consider, they've got 55 55 hotel stays on their docket this year in Sault Ste. Marie. And yet when we talk about franchises where there are, you know, curious things going on from an ownership perspective, you never hear a peep out of Sault Ste. Marie. You never hear a complaint. Oh, we've got all this to do. We've got all this travel. We've got all these hotel stays. We have to do this. We have to do that. You never hear a word. It's just business as usual. And I just think that's a, a, tremendous testament to Tim Lakenda, who is the president and governor right now. The Lakenda family has been operating the hounds for more than 20 years. And I just think it's impressive. They are the only game in town. I get that. There's not much else going on up in the Sioux, but I think if you can make it work in Sault Ste. Marie, I don't know why you can't make this league work anywhere, quite frankly. Well, it speaks heavily to culture, Mike, that we talk about culture in your organization. And and Sault Ste. Marie is an outlier in every sense of the word, geographically, in terms of advantage in this league. And and you look at the culture they try to establish in the Sioux. And if you if you were to throw any team in the league just randomly and ask a fan for their first thoughts on them, pretty much every team has a thought that comes to mind, you know, dysfunctional, never competitive, great place to play, great rank, like something comes to mind. With Sue, I, I have to be thoroughly positive when you look at their track record of developing pros, being a tough team to play against on the road or at home. And this is a team, when you look at even the successful teams like a London and you hear some of the criticisms, oh, well, yeah, they've got such a financial advantage and a location advantage and the rank's great. What can you say about Sue? I mean, they would have every excuse, like you said, to say, well, we're at a disadvantage. We don't have the the economic background of some of the teams. We don't have the, the travels a disadvantage. It's hard to lure people to a Northern climate, all these things. Like you said, you never hear that excuse. What you hear is a culture where they're like, you're going to come in here. You're going to work. We're going to make you better. We're going to make you a pro. And they're right near the top of that list for pros turned out uh, of all the OHL teams. So like you said, Mike, it's a great, a great, thing to recognize because the Sioux franchise has done things right for a long, long time. And even in down years like this year, no one ever sits on it and says, ah, this is, things are not going well in the Sioux. They say, yeah, they're reloading. They'll be good again soon because they know they've established that process to, to be respectable despite all the challenges and hardships they might have. And what, like you said, model franchise is the right terminology. Yeah. You talk about that recruitment piece and, and this is the other way I'm looking at it. We can absolutely speak to, what they've been able to do on the ice in terms of churning out future pros, for sure. Look at their wall of fame outside the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds dressing room, and they have the names of every player that skated for the Hounds and then skated in the National Hockey League. But I'm even looking at this more of late from the perspective of a parent. If my kid was drafted by the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, again, I'm going back putting myself in 16-year-old Farwell thinking Sudbury is north. Wait, you want me to go further north? Uh, I think it was Mark Matier, the former hound, who told us on this podcast that when he got drafted by Sault Ste. Marie, they were looking at the map and they couldn't even see the Sioux. And that's when 
either mom or dad realized, I think it was dad, that the map was still folded under. They had to unfold it even more to see Sault Ste. Marie. But Mark, now he makes his home. He's a Niagara area kid and now makes his home in Sault Ste. Marie and raves about it. And look, I'm not here to show for the Sioux Greyhounds. I'm just, I, I wanted to share this perspective because I'm honestly impressed every time I go up there. And I talked about this to Kyle Raftus when I was there a while ago. And I, I kind of said to him, I said, you guys are like, you do a really nice job here from every aspect of the organization. He kind of joked. He said, well, we have to. But if you think about it, if you're a parent and your kid gets drafted by the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, what's the first thought that pops into your head? Well, they're, you know, if they're Southern Ontario kids, they're, they're eight or more hours away from you as a family. Where are you sending your kid? What kind of environment are they going to have when, you know, the, the shortest bus trip is three and a half to four hours? Well, I'm here to tell you the kind of environment you end up with and just the way the players are taken care of. Forget the development side, forget the hockey side. Think about how well your son, in this case, is taken care of as a member of that Greyhounds organization. There's a strong core of billet families. The, the city absolutely loves their Greyhounds. I remember being there in the playoffs a few years ago and you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a storefront decorated in red and white Go Hounds Go paraphernalia. So from the get-go, I think they're doing a really good job of making it a desirable place. Yes, you might not get to see your kid play 68 times a year because you're not going to make that trip. You might catch them when they come south, et cetera. But you know that that organization is taking good care of your child who's leaving your nest to go and try to develop into a pro hockey player. And, you know, I, I talk about the Lakenda family who's now been running this organization for 20 plus years. The decade or so before that was Dr. George Chinook, who helped spearhead the Save the Greyhounds campaign in the late 1980s. Remember, Phil Esposito in 1989 was going to sell this team to Detroit and move it out of the Sioux. But there was a little known clause that said if local interests could come up with the million bucks to save the hounds back in 89, it had to be sold to those local interests. And there was a fellow by the name of Mert Wright who was rumored to have written the biggest check on the way to that million dollar Save the Greyhounds campaign. And Wright himself wasn't a terrible hockey player in his own right. He was drafted by Sarnia, played for the Sioux Thunderbirds, kept the organization local. Then it's Dr. Chinook. Then it moves to Dr. Lou Lukenda, who has since passed. But Tim, his son, and the Lukenda family has made a commitment to Sault Ste. Marie. I've gone on a long time here. Again, I'm not trying to shill for the hounds. I'm just saying, when I look at the way Sault Ste. Marie runs its franchise, I, I honestly can't figure out truly why you can't find 19 others just like them and there and there are some i think there are some great examples in this league of organizations that are well run and owners kind of stay out of the way we've talked a lot about michael and lauer lately for example who's getting the shaft by the city of hamilton but it's been nothing but a model owner and so on and so forth i just think what the sioux is doing is terrific and honestly if i had the means i would buy into the Ontario Hockey League just based on what I'm seeing the Sioux able to pull off. If they can do it there, how can you not do this anywhere? Well, they're they're built a little differently up there, Mike. There's 
there's a northern uh, work ethic and ethos up there that I think they they take pride in. Like you said, the community rallies around it. It it's hockey's a way of life there. And thank goodness for all those people you just mentioned that did all they could to keep the the team there. And when you look at what they've gone through to build that professional pro viable franchise, you have to wonder why some of these other more southern markets can't rally around their teams a little more and do a little better because there's teams that would would do anything to keep their team there and then there's a few markets that look like eh, not really sure and and you know what over time that pays off because like you said if i was 16 year old me looking to make uh, my name for myself in my pro career sue would be right near the top of my list because if if you don't develop in sue it's more than likely on you they give you every opportunity they have a professional style uh organization and they have a great track record so so great on the sue what a what a credit they are to this league yeah, and if you're an owner in the Ontario Hockey League that's in the news for the wrong reasons, maybe just take a look, ask yourself, why do you, like, when's the last time, until we talked about this today, Dan, when's the last time you even heard the Lucenda family's name mentioned around the Ontario Hockey League? Or when's the last time you ever talked about, oh, ownership up in the Sioux and you kind of roll your eyes? It, it just doesn't happen. And if there's a market with a reason for it to happen, I would think it's the Sioux. 55 hotel nights this year. God, that's not exactly inexpensive. Yeah, it's actually an awesome point, Mike. I like like the analogy would be the officials, right? The refs is how many times do you hear the names of certain refs? And if you're not hearing them, they're probably doing a pretty darn good job. And Sue's, Sue's that in terms of franchises, you don't hear about the ownership. You don't hear about any controversies and because they have that steady gutting hand behind the scenes and it's, it's credit to them, credit to the league. Yeah. And just to finish off the point on, if I had the money, like if I ever win the 649, I, I just might consider this. The The break-even point seems to be around 3,200 tickets sold. And Tony Saxon uh, over at Guelph today, who covers the storm, uh, tweeted out the attendance numbers around the league this year. And you know what? As we're kind of rebounding from COVID, the numbers aren't terrible. A lot of teams are around that 3,000 tickets sold. Now, I... I I don't know if they are showing, you know, bums in seats or actual tickets sold because we know there's a little bit of papering that goes on to fill up arenas. But if you can get 3,200 people into your building, you are generally that'll that'll generate for you a little more than two million dollars in revenue. And you're generally going to at least be able to to break even. So, again, I'm just looking around the Ontario Hockey League, the, the Mississauga market notwithstanding, but surely to goodness. In Sarnia and Kingston and Peterborough and Oshawa and Owen Sound, which is another great example of a franchise that's just getting it done. Can you find 3,200 people or more, because more means you're making a little bit of money, to come to your games, to enjoy this terrific product, and maybe you make a little bit of money doing it? I don't know. Anyway, go buy a franchise. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Take a little commission from the Ontario Hockey League on this episode of the OHL podcast. <laughs> Yeah, and, and maybe only 3,100 seats, Mike, if you just skimp a little on the media room food. I mean, I'm just saying there's ways to make the economics work. Uh, Apparently, cupcakes. Cupcakes are currently the gold standard for media room food. Okay, uh, let's let's move on to our prospects of the week. I just wanted to say that, and I, I say that as a Southern Ontario kid through and through, but every time I go up there, I like the Sioux more and more. Kudos to all of you, the fans, the organization, and just the people I meet in the city. It's a it's a really unique vibe up there. You talked about the ethos, Dan. I think that nails it. Okay. Uh, prospects of the week. Who you got for us this year or this week, Dansky? 
I, I tried to go a little off. I had a few fringe uh, names that aren't right at the top of that NHL draft list. And I wanted to consider them for a few different reasons. And this week I'm going, the guy I'm going with is Brad Gardner in Ottawa. And the reason I, I went with Brad is sometimes when you play in a good situation, good city, good team, you get a little forgotten when you're a prospect because you're behind good players. And when I look at Brad Gardner, I look at a guy who is, played a little bit up and down the lineup this year based on players in and out of the lineup, taking whatever role given to him, probably looked the best when he played with the year prospect of last week, Cooper Foster, uh, had, can assimilate with no matter who they throw him out there with. And he's putting up a pretty good season, pacing for approximately 40 points in his draft year, uh, versatile player. And I, I wanted to point him out, Mike, just because I think when you look at NHL prospects, he might not be right at the top of the radar this year but could be one of those really unheralded guys who next year, when a few of those bodies move out of Ottawa, suddenly you got a bit of an OHL star. So keep your eye on players like that. Um, numbers aren't blowing you away right now, but a lot of versatility, a lot of upside learning from the right players. So my prospect of the week this week is Brad Gardner. So who have you got? I tried to go in the same direction. I had a lot of recency bias going on this week, Dan. I, I saw Valentin Jugan a, a couple of times, and I'd been watching him carefully with the Guelph Storm. I, As we're talking about this, I'm less than 24 hours removed from watching both Colson Petrie and Tristan Bertucci with the Flint Firebirds. They were guys that I was looking at, but I wanted to go a little bit uh, further into the weeds too, and I came up with Nick Sema. Drafted, of course, and started with North Bay, traded over to the Saginaw Spirit. And we talked a lot about Saginaw earlier in this episode of the OHL podcast. And I think that we're going to see SEMA's development curve accelerate, especially with a chance at a championship run next year. But it's just a guy that's flying under the radar for sure. I'm not promising, you know, a 20-year pro career or anything like that. But a guy that's got... Two of his six goals this season in just the past six games. He's a plus five over that stretch. And he's he's a good complementary piece on a line. He can he's got the skill to score. It's just all, I think, still a little bit of clay that needs to be molded. And I suspect that it will be there in Saginaw with a pretty good team around him. So Nick Sema is the guy I'm picking out as my prospect of the week this week. Yeah, great, great team guy. Both both the prospects this week are good team guys. Mike and Seema had to move early in the year, a little more opportunity. And like you said, maybe starting to starting to click in the second half of the year. So another another great choice. All right. It's time for us to uh, move along and let you get back to your busy Ontario Hockey League watching this week. But a heads up as to what's coming on Friday. You want to talk about a good team guy. How about that guy that kind of, sort of, sort of, kind of is the one that's expected to go out there and uh, police things, maybe to say to some degree. I know that's not happening as much anymore, but it used to. And this guy started with the Peterborough Peets, then went to the Barry Colts, finished on a championship team with the Erie Otters, but has taken probably the most 180 degree turn since graduating from the Ontario Hockey League that you could ever imagine. He is now an award winning fashion designer i think you probably already know who we're talking about but he will be our guest on our friday episode of the ohl podcast dan no more tints that's plenty i know you know who we're talking about <laughs> a stylish character definitely don't want to miss that one he's probably a guy that you love to hate when he was in the league you might love what he's doing now so that's coming up on our next episode of the ohl podcast he over there is dan mahar find him on twitter at 
Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Remember, like, subscribe, give us a review on this podcast and send an email anytime. OHL podcast at rogers.com. Your next episode comes out on Friday. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.